in uh, just a moment, we'll pray. And as you might have guessed, based on the text, uh, we've been uh, talking about things we've been calling simple practices, things that can help us connect with God. And today we're talking about the confession of sin. And there's a lot to share. It might take two, minute, two, two messages, maybe this week and next. I don't want to overwhelm you today with information, but I want to share with you some information that is coming from the Bible uh, that will, will help you to wrestle with this subject. And so, as, as usual, I don't have the final word about anything. Feel free to do your own homework, your own research, and, 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 and uh, come to your own conclusions based on what you believe the Word of God is teaching you. Having said that, let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are the teacher. And Jesus, too, was referred to as the teacher, as, to, as, as rabbi. And we would like the teacher, the Son of God and the Spirit of God, to speak to us. Speak to us today. Help me to be available to you. Help me to just simply lean into my weakness. And help each of us to hear the word of the Lord in Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen? So again, the focus today in this series on simple practices or what some would call holy habits is confessing sin. Who likes to talk about sin? Not me, not especially, but sin is a factor in our lives and we need to learn to confess it. But I like to begin with understanding what we're talking about. So what, what is sin? What is sin? By the way, uh, when I provided the notes for Shelly, I didn't have all of the information I have this morning, so it might be better to just use a blank page if you're going to take notes. What is sin? Several words that the Bible uses to describe it. In Exodus, the second book of the Bible, so early in the history of God's interactions with people, God uses three words to describe what we think of as sin. He uses the word iniquity and transgression and sin. And iniquity uh, comes from a Hebrew word. I know a little Hebrew. He's about 5'4", 140 pounds. But um, seriously, uh, in the Hebrew, iniquity refers to perversity or depravity, what we might call a bent, an inclination toward a particular kind of unwholesome behavior. Transgression has to do with willful rebellion people who still have what we would call moral agency. They're, they're free moral agents. Now, we can lose moral agency. We can lose the ability to resist sin. Paul talked to Timothy about people who'd been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Now, some people, some people in this world are what we would call rebels. They still have the ability to choose, and they choose badly. They rebel against God. Their sin is willful. But others are captives, and they, and they can't choose. And we need to be very careful that we don't despise people who continue in sin. Because some of them have lost their agency. Am I making sense? And then there's the word sin that has to do primarily with simply a condition, like a virus. And in the New Testament, the primary word for sin just simply means missing the mark. 
missing the mark. The idea is you're pointing your arrow at a target and you, you don't hit the bullseye. You don't even come close. You miss the mark. In practical terms, sin is essentially anything short of the life of Jesus Christ. Wrestle with that. The first thing we tend to think of when we think of sin is behaviors, offensive behaviors, things like lying, things like stealing, maybe things like using bad language. But the first thing that God thinks of when he thinks of sin isn't a behavior but a condition. Romans 5, especially verse 12, talks about this. It refers to sin as a kind of virus. Adam was infected with it, and since Adam, the whole human race has been infected with it. And it leads us to believe this. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. A person isn't a sinner because he lies. He lies because he's a sinner. A person isn't a sinner because he steals. He steals because he's a sinner. Does that make sense? I hope so. You're very quiet this morning. Yeah, you're right. We've got to think about it. That's okay. So in thinking about sin, we need to address the condition, not just the behavior, not just the symptom of the condition. Eventually, we want to get at the root and not just the fruit. And by the way, as you study the Bible, one of the things you're going to learn about sin is this. There are sins of commission. In other words, there are things we commit, things we do that we ought not to do. And then there are sins of omission, things we should have done that we didn't do. And then there are sins committed by intention and sins committed accidentally. Leviticus talks about accidental sins, things that you do and you later realize you sin. And the book of Psalms talks about hidden faults. Some of our sins we're not even aware of. We're not even consciously aware of them. Let me share with you some basic facts about sin, aside from what I've already shared. Sin separates. It separates. In the book of Isaiah, God tells his people, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save or his ear too dull to hear, but your sins have made a separation, made a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear. Sin separates. It separates us from God, and when I sin against a person, it separates me from the person I sin against. And sin also always dishonors God. God said to the people of Israel, it's quoted in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then Paul quotes it in Romans 2, he says his name was blasphemed among non-believers because of the behavior, the sinful behavior of God's people. God gets dishonored when we sin. Sin dishonors God. And sin costs the person who sins. Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Not that much later, as early as Genesis 4, Cain is addressing sin. God wants him to know that sin is crouching at the door. And in one translation it says, and its desire is to control you. It's almost as if in that text God personifies sin. 
Sin is a force. It's crouching at your door. It wants to control you. Sin opens the door to the evil one. Paul says this in Ephesians 4. He warns the the people of the churches of Ephesus about sin and then says, yeah, don't give the devil a place. We give the devil a place or a foothold. A foothold. I was a wrestler in high school and college, and, and wrestlers learn pretty early. If you, can, if you can get someone's foot, literally, you sometimes aim to get someone's foot. You sometimes try to, to do what we call picking an ankle. You can usually control their whole body by taking control of a foot. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him a place. Don't give him an opportunity. Sin causes us to give the devil an opportunity, and the devil is a force to be reckoned with even for believers. That's why we're warned about him. That's why Jesus taught his followers to pray that we wouldn't be led into temptation, but that we'd be delivered from both evil and the evil one, because because he's, he's a, a, like a roaring lion. He's walking about seeking whom he may devour. We're warned about him. Another thing about sin, it's guaranteed that it will ultimately be exposed. It will ultimately become known. In the book of Numbers in chapter 32, it says, be sure, your sin's gonna find you out. Your sin is going to find you out. There's a strong record in the Old Testament regarding confessing sin, as we saw in today's text from Psalm 32, where David confessed his sin, and he also talked about how before he confessed his sin, it was just eating him up. It had, it had physical implications. It affected his, his physical and mental health. There are general instructions in the Bible to confess sin. As early as the book of Numbers, Numbers 5, it tells us the person who sins needs to confess his sin. Probably the most famous psalm of confession is Psalm 51, when we read that King David finally became aware of the impact of not only his adultery with Bathsheba, but the fact that he orchestrated the death of her husband when she had become pregnant. He needed to marry her. And he orchestrated the death of her husband, one of his most loyal soldiers, one of his elite troops, And apparently he did these things and just kept carrying on as if nothing was wrong. But finally God sent Nathan the prophet to him. And Nathan used a story to help David see what he was guilty of. And then David came to his senses. And in Psalm 51 you can read the passion with which and the desperation with which he cries out to God. And he needs to be forgiven, but he also needs to be delivered. Solomon introduces a promise about confessing sin. Proverbs 28, 13. He says, the person who conceals his transgression isn't wise, but uh, the person who confesses and forsakes their transgression, transgression, that person will find mercy. Daniel and Nehemiah, both of them, confessed their sins and the sins of the people of Israel that they were interceding for. In the New Testament, 
Believers are taught to confess sin. In, the, in what we call the Lord's Prayer, the, the prayer that, that, that Jesus taught his disciples to pray when they said, you know, Lord, John the, the Baptist, he teaches his disciples to pray. He's a rabbi too. He teaches them to pray. We need to learn to pray. Would you teach us to pray? And he, he taught them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And among the things that are included in the Lord's Prayer is this idea that we need to ask God to forgive us our sins. And he uses, in one gospel, he uses the word trespass, that we be forgiven of our trespasses, which means bad things we've done. In another gospel, he talks about debts, things we ought to have done that we didn't do. And then in 1 John 1, 9, John the Apostle is writing, and he says to those who are receiving his letter, confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins, and what's going to happen? God, who is faithful and just, will forgive your sins and cleanse you. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Powerful. And then in, in James chapter 5, the writer James says, you know, are there sick people among you? That person should call the elders of the church and they should pray for that person with the anointing of oil and that person should confess his sins. Confess his sins. And then the prayer of faith will save the sick person. I wonder how often we remember to ask people we're praying for for healing if they, they would like to confess their sins. Confession of sin was a common practice in the early church. The Bible reminds us that confession is the beginning of a new way of living. We noted Proverbs 28, 13. What happens when you don't conceal your transgressions, but you confess and forsake them? You find mercy. You get mercy. Now, mercy is God's kindness extended to us. 1 John 1, 7 tells us when we walk in the light. In other words, we don't conceal transgressions. When we walk in the light, as he is in the light, God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we get fellowship with God, we get fellowship with other people, and we get cleansing from the blood of Jesus. And you know, the blood of Jesus is a factor all by itself. Did you know the Bible says it's the blood of Jesus that silences every accusation against us and it satisfies every claim against us and it tells us that it still speaks. In the book of Hebrews, it says it speaks. It speaks better than the love of, a of Abel. Or excuse me, better than the blood of Abel. Do you know that in heaven, when you, when you say, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, wash me, the blood of Jesus speaks on your behalf and says, washed, cleansed, justified, speaks. Jesus is known as an advocate. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's advocating for you when you and I repent, when we, when we confess our sin. He's advocating to the Father on our behalf. Those who confess receive forgiveness to the extreme. Did you know that? It says, though your sins, Isaiah 1, though your sins are scarlet, God will make them like snow. Though they be red like crimson, he'll make them like wool. He'll separate them from you as far as the east is from the west, it says in Psalm 103. He'll bury them in Micah 7. It says he'll bury them in the depths of the ocean and he'll remember them no more. Wow. What does confession mean? The word confession it literally means, it comes from two Greek words that mean homologia. Well, that 
The words are homologated, and they mean saying the same thing as, saying the same thing God says. In this case, saying what God says about sin. So if God calls gossip sin, what should we call it? If God calls self-righteousness sin, should we call it sin? Yeah. How about resentment? If he calls that sin, yeah, so in other words, we shouldn't be excusing things that God calls sinful. We need to say what God says and not excuse our sins, but admit them. Admit them. God never forgave an excuse. But he forgives admissions. Admissions of fault. And sometimes it's difficult to admit to our fault. Why? Because two things get in the way. One of them is pride, and another of them is shame. And sometimes we just feel so ashamed, we don't even want to admit what we've done, And then pride also influences us to keep our sin a secret. But boy, I'll tell you, when we finally get to that place of desperation, desperation allows us to come to God and say, God, I'm guilty. Here's what I've done. Here's what I've done. Who has sinned? Who has sinned? You know, everyone has sinned all, according to Paul in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Except, except, according to the book of Hebrews, except Jesus. Jesus was tempted in every way we are, but without sin. Jesus is sinless. And he became the sinless, blameless Lamb of God who died for our sins. Is there a benefit to knowing that we are by nature sinners and that we've sinned in terms of our behavior? Is there a benefit to knowing that? Yes, the same benefit to knowing that you have a broken bone or a a blood disease. An x-ray will show you that you have a broken bone. A blood test will show you if you have a blood disease. It's good to know those things, isn't it? Isn't it better to know those things than not to know them? And, And what does God usually use to expose sin, and by the way, this is really important. God doesn't want to expose our sin to shame us. He wants to expose our sin to liberate us. God's not interested in shaming. He's much bigger than that. Remember that he loves us as we are while we were yet sinners? Remember that text in Romans 5? While we were yet sinners, he's demonstrated his love for us. Remember Romans 8, the end of the chapter? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not even your sin does separate us from communion, from fellowship, but not from his love. Isn't that good news? Wow. It breaks fellowship, but it doesn't separate us from his love. His heart is still aching to restore us. His heart is still calling out to us. That's why in Isaiah 30 it says, he longs to be gracious to you. That's the heart of God. So when you sin, when I sin, when, not if, when we sin, God's heart is aching to say, come to me, come to me. Don't conceal it, reveal it. Share it, and I'll deliver you from shame. And I'll cleanse you, and I'll wash you. What does God use to help us to understand when we sin? Three things that I'm aware of. One of them is conscience. In the Bible, 
It talks about David being smitten by his conscience about something he did that he didn't realize at the time that was wrong. And Paul mentions in the book of Acts in chapter 24 that he always worked hard to maintain a good conscience before God and man. Conscience is important, conscience. But it's not infallible. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, just because I don't feel guilty, that doesn't mean I'm thereby acquitted. Your conscience isn't isn't an infallible measure of guilt and innocence, but it is important. It is often informed by teaching, by truth. Conscience is one thing that God will use sometimes to help us to know when we've sinned, when we've grieved him. And another thing God uses is people, and hopefully loving people. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, talk about the fact that when a spiritual sibling sins against you, it's really, it's, it's, you need to talk to that person about that sin. Not to shame them, not to judge them, but to bring harmony because that's how destructive sin is. So God sometimes uses people. I've been told that sometimes I've used a tone of voice that really hurts people. And when it's somebody in your family who tells you that, you better take notice. Sometimes it's people. And sometimes it's just simply the standards written in the Bible, Old and New Testament standards. We're pretty familiar with the standards of the Old Testament that we see in Exodus 20, where what we have is the the Ten Commandments, the you shalls and the you shall nots. Those are pretty obvious. But in the New Testament, there's some things that reveal, excuse me, God's standards too. Like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about murder. He said, you've, said that it, you've heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not murder. But I'm telling you, basically, and this is a paraphrase, I'm telling you if you hate your brother, you're actually guilty of murder. And he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I'm telling you if you lust for someone. In other words, he's not talking about, by the way, the mere hormonal reaction we often have when we see someone we find attractive. He's talking about some kind of internal consent to that, some, some willful submission to, to lust. When you lust, guess what? You've actually committed adultery in your heart. And, and when that's true, we need to confess it as adultery. Those, those are examples of God using his word to help me to become aware of sinful things in my heart. Another one is husbands love your wives, and if I fail to love my wife the way I need to love my wife, guess what? That's the law. That's the, that's, that's the standard of God reminding me I sin, not to shame me, but to liberate me. In Colossians I read, fathers, don't exasper- exasperate your children, but raise them up in the fear of the Lord. And when I'm exasperating children in the home, guess what? I'm sinning against them, and it's good for me to know that because because God wants to liberate me from that. Does this make sense, you guys? And there's three basic reasons God has provided these things we call standards or the law. One is to just show us his values. Like when we read the the, the Ten Commandments, we know that God's value is marital faithfulness and respecting other people's property, not coveting other people's property, not stealing other people's property, not being thoughtless about our language, 
Those are values, honoring God, worshiping him. He wants us to know his values. Another thing we need to know is when we read these standards, God uses them, excuse me, as a diagnostic tool, like that x-ray I talked about, like that blood test. Paul said, through the law, Romans 3, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 7, 7, I wouldn't have known coveting was a sin if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. So God uses the law to help us to understand when we've sinned. And I can't say it enough, not to shame us, but to liberate us. There's a third reason why God shows us his standards, excuse me, why he gives us this information. It's to point us to Christ. Galatians 3, 3.24, he says, the law is like a signpost, also like a tutor that leads us to Christ. It's like a sign that, you know, 30 miles from here, as you're traveling from Fargo to this direction, it says, Fergus Falls, 13 miles. The sign isn't Fergus Falls. The sign points you to Fergus Falls. The law isn't the final destination. The law, the information about God's standards, isn't the final place, the resting place. It points us ahead to Jesus. And Jesus is the embodiment of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus. Jesus emancipates. Isn't that great news? Yeah. So what might confession look like? Well, it can look like a very private and sometimes desperate conversation with God about your stuff. Owning it. Owning it. And it sometimes includes a prayer that goes something like this. God, help me to own my stuff. Help me to stop justifying my stuff. I realized a long time ago, I'm destined to repeat every sinful behavior I justify. And I heard somebody once say, you spell rationalize. You know, and sometimes we rationalize our behavior. You spell rationalize, rational lies. So sometimes confession of sin looks like a private conversation with God where we get down to the nitty-gritty and we stop making excuses. Well, she provoked me and I said something nasty. Well, guess what? Guess what? You saying something nasty isn't on someone else. Do you understand that? I had to understand that early in my marriage as a young man. My wife saying something hurtful to me wasn't a legitimate reason for me to say something hurtful back. And somebody giving me the universal gesture of disapproval isn't sufficient reason for me to give them the same gesture. Or to do other things that I am truly tempted to do, to be completely honest. But confession sometimes also looks like a conversation with members of your faith community. Sometimes your faith community need to know what you're struggling with, especially what the Bible calls besetting sins, sins that keep taking you down, keep taking you to the mat. That's right. And and that's not likely to happen on a Sunday morning, but hopefully each of us eventually get involved in a small group where we get to meet some people that we feel uh, confident, are safe people, and, 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 you know, it would be okay to share with them something personal, something difficult, something that's been shaming us, and and to say, here's what I struggle with. That's why recovery communities 
attract so many people because they found a place where you can say pretty much anything and it stays in the group and you're not judged and you're not shamed. Sometimes you're held accountable. The church needs to do that. Now here's some thoughts about overcoming sin and we're gonna close. Don't be surprised by a lifelong struggle with sin. It's the nature of life here. Jesus said in this world you have tribulation. In this world you have tribulation. In the recovery community they tell you no matter how much sobriety you've had, if you've had 35 years of sobriety, you're still as close to the ditch as you were the day you started. The ditch is still there even for Christians. I'm still capable, 50 some years into my journey with Jesus, I'm still capable of doing naughty stuff. And and you know what, it's helped me to know that about myself. And another thing that's helpful, if you're gonna learn to overcome sin, the law will not help you overcome sin. Knowing the standards won't help you overcome. Remember that the law is to diagnose your sin to point you to Jesus. Jesus emancipates from the penalty of sin, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ having been declared righteous by faith and it delivers us from the power of sin. Romans 6.14, sin is no longer your master. I get so sick of hearing Christians talk about how they're a slave of sin. They're not. You're not a slave of sin. You haven't lost your ability to sin, of course, but you've lost your obligation to sin. You gotta know that. If you're believing otherwise, you're believing a lie. I will not, when I was a Lutheran pastor, I would not make that confession in a liturgy that said, I confess that I'm a slave of sin and can't free myself. I told my congregation, if you want me to lead that part of the liturgy, I've gotta change the wording. To, I confess that I am by nature a slave of sin and cannot free myself. But in Jesus, I can. Actually, it's he who does it. Sin isn't your master. John 8.36, he whom the sun sets free is what? Free indeed, that means really free. It means you don't have to white knuckle it through life. Don't believe that nonsense, you have to white knuckle it. Don't believe that nonsense that says it's about trying harder. No, it's not, it's about receiving more. Learn to receive more. Learn to receive more, come to Jesus. Say that prayer I mentioned last week. I can't, Lord, you can, please do, thank you. Another thing, it helps to consistently pray for God's help in addressing temptation. He taught us to pray that. Lead me not into temptation. How many Christians pray that? Here's a three-part antidote for overcoming temptation. Experience God as, big word, satiation. What does that mean, to be sated? When you eat Thanksgiving, you eat a Thanksgiving meal, coming up, right? You have all the turkey you want, all the turkey, right? And you have, all, I mean, if you're me, you're gonna eat a lot of mashed potatoes, not only with butter, but with gravy too. I'm gonna go into a bread coma on Thanksgiving. I'm gonna eat all the delicious rolls I can get stuff in my face. I mean, I'm definitely, that's gonna be a cheat day for me. The pumpkin pie, I can take it or leave it. I'm gonna eat some kind of dessert that's delicious. But if Uncle Fred comes in like 15 minutes after the meal and he waves a rich cracker with a little cheese it on it and says, how about this, Kev? I'm going, uh, Uncle Fred, uh, doesn't do it for me. Just not even a temptation. 
See, the Bible talks about people who are so sated on God that temptation becomes undesirable to them. Wow. Proverbs 27, 7. What's it say? The one whose appetite is sated loathes even honey. But the person with a ravenous appetite, for that person, any bitter thing tastes sweet. The Bible talks in Psalm 36 about people who are drinking from the river of God's delights and they're feasting on the table of his bounty. Imagine, your problem isn't temptation. Our, your problem and my problem is we don't feast enough on the table of God's bounty. We don't drink enough from the river of his delights. We're looking for some counterfeit comfort, some pathetic thing that says it will satisfy us. It's a lie. Only Jesus satisfies. Only in heaven will we experience his full and complete satisfaction. But you can be sated here. Learn to experience God as satiator. Invite God to help you find sin disgusting and loathsome. I was walking through a field some years ago and I came across a carcass. It's a hot day. There were maggots crawling inside and out. Not for a moment did I think, oh man, what I would do if I had a Ritz cracker, I'd just dip that into them and man, I'd munch on that. I was kind of hungry at the time. I found myself thinking of this text in Hebrews 1.9 about Jesus. He loved righteousness. He hated lawlessness. I said, God, help me to hate sin like I find this disgusting. May we find sin disgusting. It takes God to do that. I can't, you can't, please do, thank you. I can't muster that stuff. Neither can you. But we try, don't we? It's not about trying harder. You'll hear me say that lots and lots. Not about trying harder, about receiving more. More of you, Lord. You may need some inner healing. Maybe even some deliverance prayer to get really free of some things. Even though Jesus has set you free, sometimes we need some additional ministry. Would you agree? Well, that's it, guys. I'm going to invite the worship team up. That maybe is longer than normal, but wrestle with those things. I, I want you to think about this. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and I'm going to ask you to pray that God will help you to find the confession of sin a practice a normal thing that you do when you need to. And that you'll, that you'll learn to confess to God, of course, but also to the others when that's really necessary and helpful. In the meantime, I want to say, if you're here and you've never welcomed Jesus into your heart, or you have and you need to re-welcome him in, this is, this is your, your moment. Doesn't matter if you're here or watching online. Jesus is calling. Do you know that? He's calling. He's providing an invitation to everybody. So if you're, maybe you're a veteran believer and you said, man, I've, I walked with Jesus a long time ago, but we're not very tight now. How about just saying right now, Jesus, Jesus, that name, that precious name, cleanse me now, wash me, come in, come in, come in, come in. Be my savior, be my Lord, be my healer, be my deliverer, be my satiator. Yes, Lord. And now to all of you who are here, who have heard this message and you wanna be better at confessing, I ask you to pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, give me the humility to confess, to confess my sins to Jesus 
and when it's necessary to confess them to a faith community and help me to push back against shame and pride and help me to accept your forgiveness and to declare with scripture if we confess our sins, you, you're faithful, you're just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen?